The Tom Woods Show, episode 1653. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, all your friends think they know what went wrong in 2008, why there was deregulation, and we need more skulls cracked by the state to prevent that kind of crisis from ever happening again. Well, this is entirely false, and you can build up your ammunition against it by reading my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman, over at regulationmyths.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Jeff Herbener is back with us. Jeff is the chairman of the Department of Economics at Grove City College, which, by the way, houses the papers of Ludwig von Mises and hosts the annual Austrian Student Scholars Conference, which, by the way, gives away cash prizes to the top three papers, and they are indeed called the Thomas E. Woods Prizes. I don't know what to tell you, but that is exactly what they're called. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to our topic. Jeff Herbiter has created a brand new course for us at libertyclassroom.com. And this is a course on American economic history that's going to take us through about 1860 through 1921. So 1861, let's say, to 1921. A lot of great topics contained in there. And I thought it'd be a good time just to give a quick bird's eye overview of the sorts of uh, themes that are raised there because there are a lot of mistakes people make in American economic history, as you know, in the textbook treatment and in classrooms. And then they take those mistakes and they use them to justify terrible policy positions today. So we want to get things right. So we're going to talk to Jeff about his course. You can get all our courses over at libertyclassroom.com. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this course. I've just told people about it. So we're basically going from the Civil War or whatever you want to call it, up through about 1921. There's a lot of stuff to cover in that period. And yet I think some people will be dying for the Great Depression, the New Deal, these big 20th century events. But what's the case for caring about this particular period of American history economically? Well, the uh, the reason, of course, is because there's this long-running uh, battle in uh, American uh, economic history between the market, you know, the powers of the market, the uh, private enterprise, and so on, and the and the impositions of the state, and we can trace this battle, you know, all through American uh, history, and uh, it, it uh, is very informative to see how it's being uh, played out before we reach these uh, perhaps more interesting or critical episodes uh, like the Great Depression and the New Deal, World War II, and uh, and so on. It's very informative and very uh, illuminating of exactly how it all plays out when we see the sweep of it uh, through history. I'm going to uh, skip over the economics of the war between the states, partly because I know people want that. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be that way. I mean, usually I'm a very giving person. I give away a free episode every day, but doggone it, the laborer is worth his hire, as the traditional saying goes. So you can check it out at uh, libertyclassroom.com. Let's go to money and banking, though, because this this is the 50-year period before the creation of the Fed. This is really complicated, nerdy kind of stuff. But what did that – well, let's say I don't really want to know all the details of what that looked like. I don't think anybody really does. But what do we need to know about that period in the sense that 
it tells us why later on people claimed we needed a Federal Reserve. What did they think the defects were in the existing system? Yeah, that's right. So um, the basic defect that they anticipated right before the um, movement to the Fed was what was called the lack of elasticity of the currency. So it uh, didn't expand uh, sufficiently to extend booms. And then when the bus came, of course, it contracted and there was no effective mechanism institutionally to uh, prevent that. Although they they did attempt to do this with clearing houses and uh, bank agreements and so on. So we have to go all the way back. You know, the system was set up in, uh, by the Lincoln administration, the National Banking Acts um, in the uh, early 1860s. So we have to go all the way back uh, really to the those impositions and others that were made by the Lincoln administration during the war uh, to see how this all uh, moves forward and, and then uh, and then plays out. And quite a bit of this particular video is devoted to uh, other monetary affairs, uh, like the interesting case of uh, California and Oregon uh, nullifying legal tender laws on U.S. notes uh, in the 1860s, and then some of the uh, legal tender cases and the resumption of redemption uh, in the 1870s and the Bland-Allison Act and all of that that led up to the uh, uh, movement for the Fed. And as you know, this this all uh, intersects with the political parties. And so we see really the transformation of the Democratic Party in some of these issues that had to do with uh, money, the uh, giving up of their old uh, Jeffersonian position of laissez-faire and their adoption of the the populist movements of, uh, uh, of the post-Civil uh, War period. You've got sections on the major panics during this time, and that's important too because I gave a talk on this once at the Mises Institute for the re- general reason that if you don't, people will just make the argument that you don't have the right to blame the Fed for everything if we had panics and, and banking issues before the Fed. So the Fed is clearly not responsible for everything. So you need to be able to answer that? Or how does Austrian business cycle theory fare in the case of these panics? So so that is important for that reason. Now, I think it's kind of significant here that strictly speaking, in the, in the strict telling of Austrian business cycle theory, a central bank is not necessarily involved. It's simply the creation of the introduction of what's called fiduciary media. So can you take that and use it to describe, uh, let's say, one of these panics and, and whether it's useful to look at it from an Austrian perspective? Sure. And, and as you say, that's the, that's, the whole, uh, that's the whole point of this, or the main point of it, at least, to open our minds to the process of monetary inflation and credit expansion that's uh, universal in these kinds of impositions. In other words, it doesn't depend upon the institutional arrangement of the particular bureaus of the state. So if we look just uh, quickly at the Panic of 1873, uh, as you point out, the um, the system of the national uh, banks uh, allowed for fiduciary issue and credit creation. And we can, uh, you know, there, uh, there's data on this so we can uh, trace it through the boom and the bust. And if you, if you look at the period from 1870 to 1873, the amount of increase in loans and uh, investments of uh, the banking system was 62%. So that was the extent of credit expansion. And the bank uh, deposits during the same period, which is their contribution to the money stock, uh, increased 110%. Uh, 
So we, this is, by the way, the exact same kind of analysis that we would do uh, once we get the Federal Reserve and we look at the uh, booms and busts that are driven by the Fed. Because what counts, as you uh, stated already, is the extent of uh, credit creation that's undertaken by the fractional reserve uh, system of banks. And what these institutional arrangements do uh, over the course of American economic history is centralize that, that political structure. Can you, by the way, define the term fiduciary media? I realize that I'm, I'm talking inside baseball here. Right. So fiduciary media is anytime a, uh, a bank or some other financial institution has uh, issued money substitutes like, uh, like checking account balances in excess of uh, the money that they hold for redemption against those uh, claims. So any any uh, excess uh, anytime there's an excess issue we call that fiduciary media. Oh, okay. I should say I guess the reason this is important, of course, is because uh, banks issue fiduciary media by extending loans, and so they don't have to intermediate these loans. They don't have to borrow the money, in other words, from savers. They can just um, they can just write loan balances into their customers' account, creating credits by issuing these account balances. And the problem with that. I haven't talked about Austrian business cycle theory in a long time on the show, so maybe we can flesh this out a bit. Why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? Why should that concern us? Yeah, it concerns uh, us because what happens is that, as we say in uh, in the theory, this leads to a change in the direction of investment projects that causes the whole structure of production from extracting raw materials down through the intermediate capital goods production to the production of consumer goods to lengthen out. And the reason this is problematic is because in order for that lengthening out of the capital structure to be sustainable, it has to be consistent with people's time preferences. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so this is the whole problem that's set in motion, the whole self-reversing nature of the, uh, of the boom and the problem that's set in motion by uh, monetary inflation and credit expansion. You have a talk on fiscal policy, 1865 to 1913. This seems like another world, the America between 1865 and 1913. My thought, my initial thought would be, I can't imagine fiscal policy could be that interesting in those years. So what, how would you, in a nutshell, summarize what's going on? Yeah, this is, um, this is really taking place under the, the push and pull between the Republicans and the Democrats. And it's a, a movement toward higher and higher tariffs, more protectionist uh, impulses in tariffs. And then um, uh, the raising of certain internal revenues that create budget surpluses in the 1880s. And the reaction to this, very interesting, is uh, the Democrats want to cut taxes and the Republicans want to increase expenditures. And so you get this kind of compromise that moves through the 1880s. But the budget cut, or excuse me, the tax cuts of the 1880s um, have an effect on the way in which the the panics, uh, those uh, minor panics, uh, play out in 1884 and 1890. Uh, also, the income tax is uh, instituted in 1894 by the Republicans, and it um, is declared unconstitutional. And so we get this battle of. Uh, different ways of trying to manipulate uh, legislation to allow the income tax to pass muster, which eventually happens with the, uh, with the corporate income tax in 1909. So, so I guess the, the 
basic thrust of this is this is the history of how we get the modern uh, financial system of the federal government with uh, that relies uh, heavily on the income tax. Uh, you also have material on the rise of the regulatory state. This is, of course, an important period for that. You've got a talk on labor and employment. So I wonder maybe we could say something about that. It does seem to me, as I recall this material from the distant past in which I used to teach it, that uh, in real terms, wages generally uh, rose during this period. I don't think for all the stories we read in our textbooks about labor union struggles with capital that Americans were particularly heavily unionized during this period, certainly not nearly as much as Europeans were, and yet they did see fairly steadily rising wages. Is that an accurate summary? It is, and another interesting thing about this uh, to me that uh, I I tried to bring out um, was that there wasn't anything particularly distinguishable between wages of farm workers and non-farm workers. They they tended to move in concert, uh, although farm wages and farm, the farm uh, profits and so on in that uh, sector uh, moved more over the cycles, over panics. Uh, But the basic movement was uh, in in wages was was very similar. Uh, Say in the 1860s, both non-farm and farm wages went up about uh, 40%. But in the 1860s, that is from, uh, excuse me, 1870s, from 1870, 1880, they fell 25%. Then went up 20% in the 1880s, and then just modestly up in the 1890s. So it's you, you see variation as well. And that's one of the things that I've tried to do uh, throughout uh, uh, these two courses, and then in the next one, is to disaggregate the data so, you know, instead of looking just at the aggregate statistics, uh, to disaggregate and to see the, the nuances uh, as things move forward. But you're quite right. Uh, this period was a period of fairly significant uh, economic progress. I've been holding off because I want to get through the other material first and make people wait for it. But World War I is obviously the major episode of of this time. I mean, I, I suppose the U.S. Civil War is is also important, but you know, World War One involves so many countries, and you have a lesson in this course on the economics of the First World War. Now, I suppose this is primarily an issue of how the war is financed, but uh, sh- there are surely other aspects to this as well. Maybe trade flows or whatever. But uh, how is the economics of World War One? related to the well-being of the American people in terms of their material welfare. Right, and that, uh, that's the issue, too, that comes up in, um, in World War II as well. And the answer is the, the government in both of the, the federal government in both of these uh, world wars commandeered a fairly sizable portion of, uh, of the productive uh, resources in society and, and, and went through a transformation, right, to the change the uh, uh, employment patterns and the, uh, the machinery that was used in the factories and so on and so forth for war uh, production. This, of course, meant the destruction of uh, the capital value of these uh, resources and then the, the sort of interruption of uh, labor services uh, that, uh, that um, you know, happened when, when uh, workers were drawn into these uh, uh, war production areas. And so really, World War I is the precursor to the 
big show in World War II. But in both cases, there was this um, lost episode of, uh, of productive activity. Uh, it was much more, uh, of course, uh, long-lasting in World War II. And then the other thing that happened was there were, there were a lot of legacies that occurred uh, because of World War I that, uh, that uh, increased the uh, federal government power uh, over uh, economic affairs. And then, of course, led to the to the um, subsequent uh, impositions of these uh, enhanced powers that, that we see in the in the rest of the 20th century. Now I want to skip to the thing that I've really been waiting for the whole time, <laughs> because as you know, I'm somewhat invested in this topic, <laughs> and that is uh, the Depression of 1920 to 21. So I've done a little stuff on this, and then uh, oh doggone it, that Keynesian guy. Daniel uh, Kuhn, I think. Yeah. yeah. He came back and tried to respond to me. And then Patrick Newman responded to him. So I've just kind of, at this point, I'm retired. Patrick Newman's a young whippersnapper. He's done it. And I know you've done some work on this where you've gone back and looked very specifically at what Fed policy was. And Joseph Schumpeter later said, speaking of this particular episode in history, that this episode shows you all you need to know. I mean, I'm paraphrasing him about how the system rejuvenates itself without outside interference, that it just picks back up again. You don't need a new deal. So what's the situation of 1920 to 21? And why would it, why would it surprise people today? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, uh, what happened, again, if, uh, if you look in the details and, and disaggregate things to see what's going on and who's doing what, you find out that um, this, uh, this laissez-faire position uh, first on the part of the Harding administration and Coolidge on the fiscal side was part of the overall Republican uh, platform in the 1920 election. They had dedicated themselves to reducing taxes from the, from the war levels. And they, and they did. They, they dramatically reduced taxes all the way from 1920 to 1925, just pretty much straight through that period. There was something like uh, Fiscal expenditures, I think, were 60%, cut 60%, and the seats maybe 40 or 45%. But more interesting than that and, and more controversial was the policy of the Fed. And, and here, the, the history of it is that in this period before the Bank Act of 1935, the Federal Reserve really was a decentralized central bank where each of the 12 Federal Reserve district banks could set their own monetary policy in their region or their district, and they did. And, and so there was n- not a uniform policy. There was, coalitions had to be built. And the coalition that was built in, in uh, well, the set uh, policy of the Fed in 1920 was by Benjamin Strong, who was president of the New York District uh, Bank. And his coalition desired to engage in, a, in, a, in an intentional uh, monetary deflation. His idea was that Price, the price structure had to be lower in order to sort of reto- uh, re- restore the normal competitive position of American business. And so that's what they did. And this, this deflation, depending on whether you look at the credit contraction or the monetary contraction, the monetary contraction went on until December of 1921. And the credit contraction went on until the summer of 1922. So there's no doubt that... Um, that Fed policy was decidedly contractionary uh, for the beginning, 
several months, maybe half a year, uh, maybe even longer uh, of the recovery. The recovery um, is conventionally dated from late summer 1921. So, so that, uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think the data is, is, uh, is very controversial here. It seems pretty straightforward. What Daniel Kuhn argues is that the Fed started to cut its discount rate in uh, late spring of 1921. But the problem there is that the Fed's discount rate doesn't, doesn't determine whether there's credit expansion. Whether or not there's credit expansion depends upon the banks. And the banks did not start to increase their loan and investments overall until the following summer, the summer of uh, uh, 1922. So the Fed can cut the discount rate all they want, but it, it had no effect on uh, on the actual monetary aggregates. And and therefore, the, the kind of conventional Austrian analysis that was given by Benjamin Anderson and, and others uh, who are contemporaries of the event I think uh, holds true. I think it. I think it's in investigating it myself. I mean, it, it seems like that is in fact correct. So, uh, what about um, price deflation? Because there are people who think price deflation is a big problem, and uh, this is one of the things that they had to fight against in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. But what do we see in 1920 to 21 with regard to that? Well, this is another reason for going into the detail that I went into the detail about the other panics, because almost invariably in all of these panics, you see deflation, uh, price deflation, that is. And even sometimes in, um, uh, not in the bus, but in other phases of the cycle. And so you do see decided uh, reductions in wholesale prices, especially uh, in, in, in all of these bus. And so it's not correlated then with uh, the success of the recovery, the speed and uh, thoroughness of the recovery, uh, the uh, panic, uh, you know, the depression that followed in the, in the wake of the panic of 1893 was much longer and more severe than uh, uh, the panic of 1873 uh, or the bust that uh, came in the, in the wake of that. Uh, but both were price deflationary. And the 1920-21 was also price deflationary. And so the, the obvious uh, theoretical answer to this is that business depends upon, for its success, uh, upon profit, which, of course, is the difference between output prices and input prices. So the whole price structure can be falling and profit can be maintained. It simply depends upon how, how input prices move relative to output prices. Again, this is a very interesting point that uh, we'll make in uh, part three uh, on the Great Depression. So you mentioned this when there was price deflation in the uh, first uh, three years or so of the Great Depression, the Hoover administration and then Roosevelt administrations uh, propped up wages. And because they propped up wages, other input prices had to fall in order to restore profitability. And mainly, the, the other, uh, in the main, the other input price that fell, but, well, asset prices fell, which explains the, the, uh, the size of the collapse of the, of the uh, stock markets, the 90% decline in the stock markets. So we see in 1920-21, when the government doesn't bail out, they don't interfere with wages, they don't attempt to prop up prices or things of this sort, that this adjustment can occur very readily, quickly, and, uh, and, and efficiently. Now, this runs counter, of course, everything that people are told today, that you need to have this or that kind of stimulus. And if there's one thing that I find 
not just Keynesians, but a lot of non-Austrians can't stand. It's, uh, it's historical counterexamples. And it's funny that they are the ones who methodologically are supposed to be more interested in historical examples uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the methodology of the Austrian school. And yet we have a whole bunch of these. For example, Bob Murphy has come up with a bunch of cases of governments uh, slashing their budgets and there not being a problem with this, that no economic problems resulting and to the contrary, economic growth resulting. Uh, they, they call it, um, I don't know, maybe growth austerity or some kind of thing like that. And every single time, somebody like Paul Krugman has to come up with some reason that these examples are invalid. Now, okay, I could see maybe one or two, but every single example is invalid for some reason. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like he's going into this already knowing how it's supposed to come out and then just rejecting all the examples. Now, I, I'm sympathetic to him to some degree because if somebody comes over to me and says, we raise the minimum wage and look, more people are working, therefore the minimum wage increases employment, yeah, that would make me crazy too. But I'm not sure that's what's happening. Now, I, the thing is, I wonder though, what is, the, what is the methodological point that we need to bear in mind when dealing with economic history, given that unlike with the natural sciences, we can't hold one part of society constant and and then vary the other things and then test. There are so many factors at work simultaneously. We can't disentangle any one of them. We can't simulate laboratory conditions. So it seems to me that maybe economic history could in retrospect be a, like a secondary validation of something that we've established a priori uh, like, or, or, or can it do even that? What is the role of economic history is what I'm driving at? Right. Well, yes, I think it does have that role. Although, as you say, it's a little bit more nuanced, perhaps. Um, and the reason is because, as uh, Mises points out uh, in talking about the relationship between theory and history, the historical outcome, the effect that occurs, comes about because of the interrelationship between the causal factors that bring it about. And there isn't any way to disentangle these except with human judgment. And because of that, there can be differences of view of the relevance of the different causal factors in bringing about a certain effect. But theory does permit us to rule out certain uh, possibilities theoretically. And so it is a uh, theory can do that definitively. And, and we know certain things can't, can't happen, like your minimum wage example, right? We just, we just know that that isn't possible uh, on a theoretical level, that, that a, you know, a higher wage, satyrs paribus, uh, cannot increase employment. Uh, but that doesn't mean that in the in the same time period when the minimum wage is increased, that other causal factors might not be increasing the demand for labor or, you know, shifting uh, other uh, opportunities for workers, uh, their supplies, and so on. So that's the only way. A, a good economic uh, theory is the only way for us to see what the causal factors are and how they might be combined uh, to bring about a particular effect. I wrote a an article for the QJ, Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, that I just made reference to, I think this week here on the show, called What Austrian Economics Can Teach Historians, which I'm still pretty happy with. So maybe I'll link to that, link to the econ history article. And I think I may have originally given that as a paper at an event you guys had at Grove City College, but my memory is so poor now. Some of these major life milestones are, are but phantoms to me now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right, though. I think I do vaguely remember that. I'll have to look it up now that you said that. 
yeah, I don't, <laughs> sorry, I can't remember. I mean, it's not to say I haven't cherished every moment I've spent with you over the years, Jeff. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Same here, Tony. I appreciate that. Well, listen, we are going to keep our fingers crossed that the Mises University summer program will still go on, um, if somewhat smaller than usual, because, of course, it's going to be tricky for some Europeans to get to the U.S. and all that. But doggone it, I want to see some of our events just carry forward, you know, uh, as normal to the extent possible. So I look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, I want to urge people to check out the Herbener courses. Uh, this is the second of two on uh, American economic history, but there are other ones too. Jeff did an introduction to Austrian economics for us. He did one where we took uh, the best-selling economics college textbook of all time, and Jeff went through and critiqued it chapter by chapter from an Austrian perspective. Really great stuff. That's all available at libertyclassroom.com. You can get a coupon there at libertyclassroom.com slash coupons. And uh, Jeff, as I say, let's keep our fingers crossed, hoping to see you in July. Absolutely. That'll be great. All right, folks, before I let you go for your homework assignment, which is to go sign up for libertyclassroom.com, I want to tell you about probably the most unusual website I have ever promoted on the Tom Woods Show. This is also created by a Tom Woods Show listener, and it is called <clears throat> pottyperfection.com. All right, what could this be about? It's pretty much what you think it is. This is a let's say, a humorous and engaging account of the numerous and surprising health transformations of Johnny Lee, which started by fostering a healthy gut. I think you need to read it for yourself. You need to go to pottyperfection.com and read what's on that start page, that initial page you get to. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's just put it this way. You're going to learn along with the author about dozens of natural health improvements he's had, including improved sleep, greater mental clarity, better immunity, fewer embarrassing bodily functions, and many more. And it looks like the tagline for this site is healthy poo equals healthy you. Yes, I just said that on the Tom Woods Show. So why don't you go check out pottyperfection.com. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1653. And another project you could work on, especially those of you still imprisoned in your homes, over the weekend is to get started on that blog you've been meaning to start because I have a nice video that shows you how to have a blog up and running literally in five minutes. And you can find a link to that video at tomwoods.com slash publicity, which is also how you can find, once you start that blog, how to get the old man here to give you some free promotion. So tomwoods.com slash publicity is where to go. And I'll see you all next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.